Well, let's read the Bible together now. We're turning to John chapter 11 again this morning. Uh, we've been tracking our way through this chapter over the past few weeks. And we're coming to the middle part of the chapter now. We're beginning our reading this morning at verse 28. And we're reading down to verse 37. If you're following along in our Pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 897 over into 898. Page 897 over into page 898. Uh, this is the famous story of Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. We haven't actually got to that part yet. Uh, we're not going to get to that part this morning either, but we're going to read a little section about Jesus dealing with Mary. He dealt with Martha in the previous section, and now in verses 28 to 37, he deals and encounters Mary. So John chapter 11, we're beginning our reading at verse 28, and this is God's word to us this morning. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you led him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's pray together before we look at the Bible this morning. Father, we're thankful for all that we've, all that we've learned in John chapter 11 so far. We thank you for this really helpful chapter in the Bible, and we pray that as we look at the next section this morning, that you would speak to us again, that you would help us to understand your word, and that you would help us to see the character, the greatness, the, the, the amazing nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you for him, how we thank you for his word, and we pray that you'd come by your spirit and speak to us all this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 11 uh, is on pages 897, 898 of the Pew Bibles, and you'll find it really helpful to have that passage open in front of you. Uh, this morning we're continuing our series under the broad title, Goodbye to Goodbyes, and we're looking at verses 28 to 37 of John 11 in particular this morning. And one of the most amazing things about God is that he knows us as individuals. The, the Lord Jesus deals with us on a personal, individual level. You see him doing that with people in the Gospels where they encounter him and come face to face with him. But there's a very real sense in which Jesus continues to do that today with people like you and me. As we open the scriptures together now, we're encountering and coming into contact with the risen Lord Jesus. And he's, he's dealing with us on an individual level. We're, we're meeting together corporately as a group, 
but he's taking a dealing with each one of us. The, the, the Lord Jesus deals with each one of us on a personal, individual level. It's really quite something when you think about it or when you think about how others interact with you and, and, and treat you. So to an employer, you're replaceable. To the health service, you're a number. To, to, to government, you're a national insurance number or a tax code. To the bank, a phone company, an internet provider, you, you're a voice at the other end of the line. But to the Lord Jesus, you're an individual created in the image of God and made for his glory. And if you know him and have trusted in him, then his love is upon you forever and will never be broken or damaged or taken away. Despite all the progress that has been made from a, a technological perspective over the past number of years, th th there are more lonely people than ever before. But Jesus deals with us on an individual level. He's not an employer. He's not part of the health service. He's not a representative of government. He's more than just a distant voice in a call center far away. He's interested in you and in me, in what's happening in our lives, in whether or not we've believed in him. His interest in us is all part of his love for us. Last week we saw that Jesus loves deeper than we do and he, he shows that by, by allowing us to pour out our hearts before him and by asking us directly if we believe in him. We, we, we've been walking our way through John 11 over the past few weeks and, and last week we looked at Martha's response to, to her situation and to the Lord Jesus. This week we're going to look at how Mary responds but what we're going to see is the same. We're going to see that Jesus loves deeper than we do. The two things that, we're going to, that, that are going to help us see that point are the truths that Jesus is capable of compassion and that Jesus is worthy of worship. That, that, that's where we're going this morning in terms of our structure. Let, let, let's think about that first point together. J Jesus loves deeper than we do and we see that because he's capable of compassion. Let, let, let's pick up the story where we left off. You remember that Jesus has been speaking with Martha He's told her that he is the resurrection and the life. He has asked her if she believes this. She has said that she does and she makes one of the greatest confessions of faith ever recorded in the New Testament. Verse 28 and following tells us what happened next. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to, to the tomb to weep there. So Martha goes and calls for her sister, and Mary duly responds by coming out. She was still in the family home and was surrounded by professional mourners. Now, we've mentioned this in passing, but we haven't really explored it in any depth. We've talked about how the family were in ritual mourning. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Jesus' day, it was customary for families to hire professional mourners when someone related to you died. A Jewish funeral custom dictated that even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. You can imagine meeting someone like that. What do you do for a living? Well, I cry really loudly at people's houses. Now, that kind of culture is very alien to us, but th that's what would have been happening in the family home. Th th there would have been this professional grief, but of course there would have been th the real tears from Mary and Martha because Lazarus has died. And also because Jesus delayed. 
Now that, that has been one of the big issues in this passage. Jesus heard about Lazarus, but waited two days before going. He eventually ri- arrived with the family four days after Lazarus has, had, had died. We saw how Martha responded to Jesus' delay last week. How does Mary respond? Well, look at verses 32 and 33. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Mary runs out of the house, sprints out of the house and says exactly the same words Martha said to him just moments before. Verse 21 is exactly the same as verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We have to realize that Jesus is confronted by a reasonably chaotic scene. Mary has come out of the house and is weeping and is saying exactly the same thing that Martha has said. Martha, it seems, spoke to Jesus privately, but his conversation with Mary is happening in full view of the Jews and the professional mourners the family had hired. And the whole scene moves the Lord Jesus. Just look again at what verse 33 says. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now there are two key phrases here. Wonder did you spot them? The key phrases are deeply moved and greatly troubled. Now what those phrases tell us is that Jesus is capable of compassion. The first phrase deeply moved comes from an ancient Greek word that describes a horse snorting. So we've all heard that noise. I'm not going to do it for you now, but you've heard a, a horse snort, a horse throwing back its head and, and snorting. Now, when that word is used about a person, it suggests anger, outrage, and a deeply emotional response. And that's how Jesus feels here. The, the first phrase is connected to the second, being deeply moved. He is greatly troubled. He has taken this situation to heart. He feels the pain this family feels. Now, you might have a question at this point. If Jesus is angry and outraged, what is he angry and outraged about? Well, the answer seems to be fairly straightforward. Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled at the sin, sickness, and death that wrecks so much havoc and generates so much sorrow in this fallen world. Jesus is being brought face to face with the effects of the fall here. One of the main consequences for Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden was death. And Jesus is standing facing the reality that his friend has died and his other friends are grieving. And so he says in verse 34, where have you led him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And off they trudged to that first century graveyard, to the place where they had the little service, to to the place where they heard the, the, the memorial speeches and touching tributes. To the, place where they, to the place they thought they'd never go to, never be, because they thought that Jesus was coming. He's with them now, though, and what does he do? Well, verse 35 puts it as succinctly as you could possibly put it. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He didn't wail. He wasn't a professional mourner, and it's not the word that's used here. He wept. The the word that's used means means that tears ran down his face. Jesus is capable of compassion. Now, we've got to linger on this. 
that this is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's actually a very important one. It's brevity doesn't mean that we skip it. It's actually counterintuitive. Well, we could spend all morning thinking about this, this verse alone, just these two words. If this little section wasn't in the Bible, you, you could very easily come to all sorts of, of wrong conclusions about Jesus. You could be tempted to think that this whole situation is a setup. You could coldly conclude that the events had been arranged for the glory of God, verse 4, that Jesus waited for Lazarus to die to increase dramatic tension, verse 6, and the whole thing was, was carefully stage-managed for Jesus just so that he could show off. Now, there is an element of truth to that way of thinking, but, and it's a really important but, but they imply that Jesus is some kind of unloving puppet master who, who uses people, and that is just wrong. And it's not how the Bible presents God at all. From the earliest pages of the Bible, we read that God is emotionally involved in the narrative of history and that he cares about his created beings. So think of what it says in Genesis 6 verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That's emotional involvement. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the same thing. And in this chapter, we've already been told that Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus. The fact that Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen doesn't keep him from reacting emotionally to what's before him. Now remember that he, he knew that Lazarus had died before anyone had told him. So he knows what's going to happen here, but that doesn't stop him from weeping. He isn't cold to the realities involved in this situation. He's capable of compassion. Sin is awful. Death is its terrible consequence. The woe and misery of death troubles Jesus. He isn't a heartless judge withdrawn from pain that people feel muttering under his breath that they got what they deserved. No, he's, he's deeply moved, greatly troubled, and he weeps. No one knows better than Jesus what is going to happen here. No one is better mourning with those who mourn than Jesus. Jesus loves deeper than we do, and he's capable of compassion. Now this seems almost too simple to linger on and pause on and reflect on, but it's worth contemplating and realizing that the person you've believed in, the person that you've trusted to take away your sins is capable of understanding what it is you're going through at the moment. Let me, let me read you a quote that might help you understand this more deeply. Well, one person has said this about the section we're thinking about this morning. They've said, not many passages in the New Testament are more wonderful than the simple narrative contained in these eight verses. It brings out, in a most beautiful light, the sympathizing character of our Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us him who is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him, as able to feel as he is to save. It shows us him who is one with the Father and the maker of all things, entering into human sorrows, and shedding human tears. If you're struggling to see a way through at the moment, if you're wondering where your next drop of strength is going to come from, if you're thinking that whatever you're going through is, is too much to bear, what should you do? You should run to Christ and you should rest in him. He, he is able to feel as he is to save. The Lord Jesus loves deeper than we do and he's capable of compassion. The, the, the second thing we see in this section is that Jesus is worthy of worship. 
As we said already, Mary and Martha say exactly the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what's notable is a little detail about what Mary does just before she says that. So look again at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you've heard what she says, but have you seen what she does? She ran to Jesus, runs out to him, saw him, and then she fell at his feet. Now, you maybe know this, but there's a reasonably big market for Bible studies comparing Mary and Martha. I think we talked about this when we looked at the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? That's not the point of the story in Luke 10, and it's not the point here. But it is worth saying that Mary and Martha had different personalities. Martha is all work, all business, and prefers a quiet conversation. Mary is more contemplative and emotional. And you can see that in their reactions in this story. Mary's falling down at Jesus' feet is a deeply emotional response. But there's surely a little bit more to it than that. Throughout the New Testament, one of the most common reactions to Jesus is that people bow before him. And when they fall before him, they're recognizing that he is who he says he is. So think of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2, falling down and worshiping the child Christ. Think of the demon-possessed man in Mark 5 who sprints to Jesus and fell down before him. Think of the one leper out of 10 that was cleansed by Jesus. He returned and Luke says he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. But perhaps the best example comes from John. What parts of the New Testament did, 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 did John write? A gospel, three epistles and revelation. And what does he tell us happens when he encounters the risen and exalted Lord Jesus? He has that vision in Revelation 1. He turns and looks at the one who is speaking. And what does he do? What happens? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, or John, just like Mary, encountered Jesus and fell down before him. That's because Jesus is worthy of worship. This whole chapter should help us to worship Jesus. That, that, that is essentially what the Bible has been given to us for as well. We have the scriptures, the sure and final revelation of God given to us in this book so that we might worship him. What's interesting about Mary is that her worship of Jesus wasn't just reduced to an emotional public display. Her worship of Jesus is seen in the next chapter. Now remember that John has sort of cryptically mentioned something that hasn't actually happened yet. In verse 2 of chapter 11 he writes, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And we're reading that and we're thinking, well, I've been reading John's gospel from the beginning, since chapter 1, verse 1, and that story hasn't been mentioned. I haven't seen that. It isn't mentioned or told until chapter 12, after this story. Just glance over to chapter 12 with me. John moves to six days before Passover, so we're into the final week of Jesus' life. We're told that he's having dinner with friends. It seems that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are the hosts. But look at what John writes in verse 3, John chapter 12. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary takes a significant amount of perfume 
out and she anoints Jesus' head and feet. It's an astonishing moment for lots of reasons that we're not going to go into. But what's the takeaway point? Well, it's an act of worship on her part. Mary pours out her greatest earthly treasure on Jesus because she knows that he is worthy of worship, worthy of, uh, worthy of her worship, her devotion, and her service. The most expensive thing in her house is nothing to her when it comes to worshiping Jesus. Oh, that the same thing might be said of us, that the most expensive thing, the most important thing, the thing we love the most, the thing we protect the most, the thing we guard above everything else is nothing to us when it comes to worshiping Jesus. Doesn't hold us back, doesn't hold our attention more than him, doesn't interfere with our relationship with him, doesn't matter when, it, when he tells us to give it up or let it go. A CT stud captured Mary's, Mary's response to Jesus when speaking of his own situation in response to Christ. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. No sacrifice was too great for Mary in the end because she knew that Jesus was worthy of worship. Jesus loves deeper than we do. He's capable of compassion and he's worthy of worship. Now, where does all of that leave you in terms of your, uh, in terms of your standing before Christ? The, the compassion point is, is a very helpful one for you if you know Jesus and are going through hard times at the moment. The fact that he's worthy of our worship is, is always a challenge to our naturally sinful, selfish hearts. But what if you're not a Christian? What does this passage say to you or how does it challenge you? Last week, the challenge was very clear. The question rang out, do you believe this? The, the, the challenge this week is, is slightly more subtle. I, I want you to see something that you might not have picked up on. When Jesus is deeply moved, he's, he's angry and outraged at the havoc that sin and death has caused. But there's also a sense in which he's angry and outraged at the unbelief that he sees around him. The, the, the Jews are mentioned in passing throughout this story and we, we've got a flavor of their feelings towards Jesus at the end of the section that we've read this morning. In verse 37, some of the Jews said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're essentially questioning Jesus' power. He healed the man born blind. Why couldn't he have healed Lazarus when he was sick? Now, Jesus more than likely heard that, and it comes after we're told that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. But this is the same Jesus who didn't need to be told that Lazarus was dead. So it's safe to assume that before he hears the unbelief of the Jews, he senses it. And in the same way, although, although you might come to church and look outwardly respectable, he can sense your unbelief as well. You can't fool him in that way. You can fool other people. You might be able to fool other people. You might be able to fool the minister. But you can't fool Jesus. It's not possible. He knows your true spiritual standing. He knows your true heart response to him. And if it's not belief and trust in him, then that's a problem. A problem that can only be solved by you turning from your sin and your unbelief and bowing before him by falling before him in repentance and faith. 
Well, what we see in this passage is a magnificent view of Christ. What can we say about what he does in this chapter? Well, he deals with those he encounters on 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 a personal, individual level. And that's how he deals with you this morning. He's not an employer. He's not part of the health service. He's not a representative of government. He's more than just a distant voice in a call center far, far away. He's interested in you, interested in me, in what's happening in our lives, in whether or not we've believed in him. He can see right through your outward performance in a way that no one else can. And if you haven't trusted in him, he invites you to come to him today. He loves deeper than we do, and he's capable of compassion and worthy of worship. So will you trust him? Will you turn to him? He's the only one who can rescue you. Where where, where does all of that leave us in terms of this story? It leaves us at the graveside with the tears streaming down Jesus' face. The saviour of the world, God made flesh, God among us, weeping at a graveside. What's he going to do? The only thing he can. He's going to show that he is the power to say goodbye to goodbyes forever. More on that next time. But will you trust him this morning if you haven't already? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this deeply pastoral section in your words this deeply pastoral chapter in your word. We thank you that it tells us so much about our precious Lord Jesus, that he knows better than we do, that he loves deeper than we do. Father, help us to rest in him. Help us to run to him. Help us to find our hope and our comfort in him. And we pray that you would speak to those who haven't yet trusted in him. We pray that through their unbelief, you might speak to them, that you might come by your spirit and help them to see that only you can rescue them from their sins. Father, we thank you for your words. Help us to take it to heart and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.